The Fanboy, episode 69. Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you and this is the 69th edition of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? You know, I hope you're all living your best lives right now or at least trying to because, you know, it's been a couple of weeks since we last spoke. I uh, I took a trip to Puerto Rico and in general, I've had a, a number of of wonderfully life-affirming moments. And it's kind of part of my mission now at at the ripe old age of 35 to try to make sure that my favorite moments, the best things in my life are not in the rearview mirror. Because, you know, so often when we think about the good times, it's always kind of nostalgically in the past, right? It's something that we think about in the past and, you know, oh, if I knew now what I, if I knew then what I know now, things would be different and we kind of lament and we kind of you know, romanticize the past, and I kind of make it my mission to enjoy the present as much as possible. And these last few weeks have been filled with moments where I've really kind of just had to pinch myself, you know, in personal ways and professional ways. Just I've had to take moments where I, I sort of step outside of myself and look at how good things are and try to appreciate and value and take like a mental snapshot as it's happening. So that it's not something that I I sort of miss or take for granted and then only think about years later, oh man, I really had it good then. Because, uh, yeah, the trip to Puerto Rico was exactly what I needed, exactly what my wife, my kids, and I all needed. It was like a perfect week in paradise. The weather was amazing. I had extra family there than I was expecting because, you know, I have plenty of relatives in Puerto Rico. This is my 12th time, my 12th time going there and it's kind of like my home away from home. But there were some other relatives in town and it also just so happened that it was my Aunt Yvette's birthday while I was there. So there was just a lot of extra celebrating and meeting for delicious dinners and going to wonderful beaches and it was just, I don't know, it, w- it was filled with surprises it was, it was filled with rest. It was filled with beautiful sights and, and, and new experiences and a spirit of improvisation. And, you know, what adventure are we going to have today? But also, more importantly for me as a father, you know, it, it's been about four years since I last went. And when I went there last, you know, my son was three months old. So he was just a mush. and He couldn't really understand, you know, what was going on. And my daughter was only three. So, you know, she enjoyed herself, but she didn't necessarily fully grasp and understand what was going on and where we were and how cool this was. And, you know, so this time I had several moments, I got to tell you, where I just kind of looked at them and I'm like, wow, my kids are walking around Viejo San Juan and they're dancing to Puerto Rican music and eating my culture's food and speaking to my abuela who lives out here who they never get to see. And they're spending time and bonding with this part of their family, this part of their culture, this part of their lives that they've never really had a chance to check out before. And that was just monumentally special because the two of them fell in love with the island of Puerto Rico. And that means so much to me. And now I got to try to get over to Cuba, which is where I've never gone there myself. So that's the other half of my sort of ethnic mix. And I want to kind of connect with those roots. We're going to try to get there in the next year or two, hopefully. But, um, 
yeah, there were just several moments, several moments riding horses through the rainforest or being on one of the most beautiful beaches in the world, surrounded by my loved ones and just kind of taking it all in like, wow, this is the life that I've built. This is the life that I'm giving my kids. You know, they're having such a better childhood than I did. And in a way, you know, being the kind of parent to them that my wife and I get to be to them is almost like getting to be that parent to my little inner child is so just rewarding. And I guess I just hope that everyone out there is taking the moment to to step outside of themselves and realize when they're living their best lives as they're living them and not just, you know, thinking back on them years from now, because it's so important to savor those little moments as they happen. Um but, you know, also professionally, it's been it's been going very nicely. You know, Revenge of the Fans is continuing to grow. My 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 ragtag group of volunteer writers and, and, and podcasters and everyone is working so hard to help build the brand up. And we're really making a name for ourselves. I mean, we've really only been around for eight months. And I feel like, you know, our stories are are constantly getting passed around and people are talking about us and the podcast numbers are moving up. And, you know, today I get to speak to Mark Wade. Like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I have to pinch myself. You know, I get to speak to Mark Wade, the writer of Kingdom Come and Superman Birthright and someone who I really consider sort of just like the modern day custodian of the of the values of Superman. And for someone like me who like, you know, has grown up loving this character so much, it just, you know, it's unbelievable what's going on. And, um... I, I'm kind of glad to be back. It's been a nice couple of weeks. Uh, just a couple of uh, housekeeping things I want to just sort of announce here at the front of the show is that, you know, stay tuned. Our, our Patreon uh, campaign is about to get kicked up a notch because starting in September, we are, we're going to start offering all kinds of exclusive content uh, from, from this show, from the Revengers podcast, from the site itself, new YouTube videos, new in general, brand new content to kind of help, uh, you know, boost up our Patreon offerings. Cause right now that's an area that, that that's a part of our game. I have total, you know, I haven't had the time to really invest in or really the manpowers or time to just do, to really just fully throw myself into. And, you know, right now as we're trying to get the site, you know, profitable and get it up and running and make, make, making it so that my volunteer ragtag group doesn't have to just volunteer all the time. I want to pay them. Um, you know, the Patreon is an important part of the puzzle these days. And just stay tuned because we're, 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 we've been discussing sort of behind the scenes what we want to offer and things like, you know, audio commentaries and specific essays and reviews on movies that you, the Patreon patrons, you know, uh, you know, suggest to us and all that sort of stuff. There's just there, there's a lot of stuff, in, you know, a lot of things getting worked on. So stay tuned on that end. But um, all right. Let's go ahead and talk about what's going on out there. So something I want to touch on here that I haven't touched on in this show that I did touch on on the Revengers a couple of weeks ago with Brett, um, you know, the, the, the situation with James Gunn, just real quick, you know, because there are some insights onto this that I didn't get to share there. And I know, you know, maybe the conversation on that end is starting to die down. So I don't want to take up too much of your time with this. But something I want to sort of clarify, because, you know, I, I've come out as being sort of upset about this issue. And I need to make clear, I'm not upset with Disney. You know, I'm upset with fans. 
I'm upset with this whole concept of the court of public opinion being judge, jury, and executioner, where everything gets confusing and muddy and vicious without any real basis in truth. It's all based on feelings and hearsay rather than facts. So you get people with agendas and axes to grind who just start repeating garbage and then a bunch of people start latching onto that garbage and reciting it themselves. And suddenly it goes from a guy making a bunch of inappropriate jokes 10 years ago to a guy actually being a pedophile and a racist in the mind of some and all that sort of stuff. Like it's just things get so warped and so out of hand so quickly in this silly little court of public opinion now where everyone is a rage mob and an angry mob and everyone wants to tear down those they don't agree with for words they've spoken. You know, it, it's really kind of jarring and scary for me. And that's why, you know, I know I tend to leave the uh, film referrals for the end of the show, but I'm actually going to just kind of incorporate it right here into this because it's very much part of this conversation. You know, my movie referral this week is a documentary called Can We Take a Joke? It's on Amazon Prime, and it primarily focuses on the world of stand-up comedy and kind of how Lenny Bruce and others have pushed boundaries and how where we are nowadays in terms of this uber-sensitive, uber, you know, we, are, we have the thought police. Social media is now the thought police, the comedy police. And everyone's, oh, you said something I don't agree with, so now we're going to ruin your career and ruin your life even though what we're taking you know, that you've said is totally out of context. And you know what? Being outraged by something doesn't mean you get to ruin someone's life. You know, and it, it's got a lot of interesting things to say about the freedom of speech and, and where, you know, kind of where we're heading, how we're kind of going backwards. Where, you know, in the, in the late 60s, it became about fighting for the freedom of speech and allowing people like Lenny Bruce to not have to go to prison for making, you know, jokes that some conservatives didn't agree with. And now we're heading back into that territory where, yeah, maybe people aren't going to jail, but their lives are being completely upended by rumor and innuendo and, and, and words that they've spoken that are perhaps being taken out of context or at the end of the day really are just jokes. There's no actions attached to them. They're just words on a screen or words that are spoken. People are kind of getting you know, tossed into the fire these days with this sort of you know, outrage culture that we're living in. So this week's movie referral is the documentary, Can We Take a Joke? But just to kind of be clear here, you know, I don't think Disney is the bad guy. You know, they kind of have no choice, whether it's fair or not. You can't have a brand like Disney associated with someone who's made jokes and comments like the ones Gunn has made. You know, it's just it's just too hard. It's too hard to explain to families, to, to people who are more conservative-minded, and, and to foreigners where there's like a language barrier, having to explain to them that, no, no, it's, it's you know, context is king. It's all a big misunderstanding. There are nuances at play. It's, it's dark humor. He was being subversive and provocative. Like, you know, you can't explain that to, to people. You know, there are certain groups of people who will not take the time to understand those nuances. All they'll do is they'll hear, wait a minute, this guy made a series of pedophile jokes that I've never read, but now I've just been classified pedophile jokes. And now that, you know, Disney's hiring him, this is an outrage, you know? So it's just, it's just too steep of a hill for them to climb, you know? So I just want to make that clear. I actually don't think Disney is the bad guy here. And I'm fascinated by, you know, what's going on with Dave Batista taking shots at them and all that sort of stuff. And listen, I, I fully support his desire 
to stand by gun and really kind of like, you know, put himself at great professional risk here to save his his collaborator, his his director, his writer. But, you know, it, it, it's a tough fight to, to fight because, you know, Disney is not I in my eyes, you know, they kind of did the only thing they could do. And it's unfortunate and it sucks, but it's kind of all they could do. Um and as for some, you know, some bochinche, you know, a little bit of Marvel rumors I'm hearing is that, you know, Kevin Feige is not on board with this. You know, he thinks it's all a little outrageous and he's he's very unhappy about this situation. You know, he, by the way, like that's why he was like conveniently out of town when uh, the last meeting with Gunn and Disney took place where they made ultimately the final decision on whether or not they were going to reinstate him on Guardians 3. He was conveniently out of town and he kind of, you know, he just, he's been avoiding this. And of course, he'll publicly take Disney's side and accept their decisions. But I'm told he is not happy. Behind the scenes, he thinks it's all a little ridiculous. And one of the things, one of the aspects of this story that I don't think enough people are talking about and why this is a big deal is that James Gunn was going to be the guy. Now, who's the guy, you ask? Well, if you've paid attention and read between the lines these last 10 years, you'll see a pattern with how Kevin Feige does things. You know, while he's essentially the showrunner in this producer-driven cinematic TV series that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he's always had someone or someones, some persons, who act as his creative right hand. Because remember, he's he self-admittedly wasn't a huge comic book nerd growing up. A lot of his, 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 you know, the way he approaches these characters is what he knows about them, cinematically speaking. And in general, you know, he's never been a writer. He's never, you know, he's not like a guru in this world. So he tends to rely on others to kind of creatively sort of provide that jet fuel to kind of help guide things. And, you know, like in phase one, when things were still a little bit more filmmaker driven, it was John Favreau who sort of set the tone. But then once Joss Whedon was hired in 2010, you know, that was two years into the MCU, you know, he became the de facto creative guru at Marvel Studios. He wasn't just in charge of the Avengers. He was brought in to write scenes and even direct scenes in other people's movies and make sure that everything fit and worked together as they prepared to give us the first ever Avengers movie. And he stayed in that sort of creative guru role uh, until Age of Ultron. You know, there, there, there's a famous little anecdote that Alan Taylor shared in Entertainment Weekly, you know, years ago. That like, you know, Whedon was airlifted to the set of Thor The Dark World to help fix and tweak a scene on the fly because he was like Feige's guy. He just deployed Whedon to go help with something. And if you've read our series, you know, The Road to Infinity War, you know, writer John Crabtree, the co-founder of Revenge of the Fans, he also kind of went into more detail about how hands-on Whedon was with Thor The Dark World. And in general, you know, Whedon was Feige's right hand. And then after Age of Ultron, he kind of got burnt out and tired and he moved on. And once he left, the Russos sort of assumed that position between Civil War and directing the first two, I mean, the next two Avengers movies, which is Infinity War and the one that comes out next year, you know, with a title still to be revealed. You know, the Russos are currently at the steering wheel. But the plan was after this for James Gunn to become the architect of Marvel's you know, cosmic cinematic plans, because that's where they're heading. You know, between 
Captain Marvel and Guardians 3 and the Eternals. You know, Gunn was said to be the person Feige trusted with fleshing out the MCU's journey into the cosmos. And with the Fox purchase, by the way, I mean, with the Fox purchase, meaning they can now explore characters like Galactus and the Silver Surfer and all that other stuff, you know, make no mistake, the MCU is heading out into the stars to tell some seriously otherworldly stories in the years to come. And it was going to be Gunn who helped guide a lot of that. That's why he was, you know, he was the one people were turning to for questions about Galactus and Silver Surfer and the teases that he put into Guardians Volume 2 about Adam Warlock and all this other stuff you know he was going to be the guy who helped Feige navigate the cosmic end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe which is an area that they're going to be exploring a lot in the years to come and now he's gone you know so you got to feel for him and for Feige because if this situation doesn't die down and they really are forced to sever all ties with him then Feige's going to have to turn to someone else and he may even have to rethink some of his plans because Gunn really was spearheading a lot of it. He was going to be the guy in Feige's ear helping guide him through this very sort of interesting, you know, corner of the MCU. So, you know, that part should be the biggest bummer for all, you know, for, for MCU fans. Kind of wondering now, how is this all going to shake out? What does this mean for the cosmic plans that are on the horizon Obviously, what does this mean for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and everything? But, you know, th those questions and that uncertainty now with Gunn, you know, that has to be the biggest, you know, uh, issue now for MCU fans. And I think we kind of need to focus on that because, again, yelling at Disney about this, is it's kind of silly. They kind of did all they could do. But, you know, it's interesting, though, because, you know, while they're definitely erring on the side of caution when it comes to Gunn, I hear they're preparing to court some serious controversy at another end of Disney's business, and that is in their animation, because I hear with almost like 90% certainty that the old rumor about Elsa being gay in Frozen 2 are absolutely true. Now, while it's unclear whether it'll be directly referenced or merely implied the way it was with Josh Gad's, you know, LeFoe and the crush he had on Gaston in last year's Beauty and the Beast, you know, I'm told that Elsa will indeed be gay. Whether or not it's directly addressed, I'm not sure, but that is, the, you know, the, the word on the street is that they've made that decision internally and it will be, you know, referenced directly or indirectly in some way in Frozen 2. And that kind of makes this gun thing a little more complicated to me because on the one hand, you know, they're playing it safe. You know, they, they, they fired him to avoid backlash from families and conservatives and generally sensitive demographics. But meanwhile, they're also now risking a huge backlash from those same groups when it comes out that Elsa is the first gay Disney princess. Which, by the way, I commend them for. It's a bold choice and, you know, I'm all for inclusion and equality. But in terms of this issue, it's like, what is it, Disney? You know, are we playing it safe? Are we playing to the base of the families and the traditional values and all that sort of stuff? Or are we pushing boundaries? You know, are we assuming audiences are so thin-skinned that they can't determine for themselves whether or not they want to support James Gunn? Or are we assuming that mainstream audiences are now progressive enough to embrace a gay Disney princess? 
you know, which is it? So right now to me, you know, not that there's necessarily, this isn't apples to apples, obviously, but just in terms to me, it's interesting in terms of Disney sometimes playing it extremely safe and then in other ways being astoundingly bold in what they're doing. So, you know, just kind of wanted to drop that bit of Marvel and Disney bochinche on you. I don't tend to kind of venture into those topics all that much because uh, most of my insiders are over on the DC Warner Brothers end of things. Um, so, yeah, I kind of wanted to give you that. And speaking of my insiders on the D Warner Brothers DC end of things, you know, uh, we had a scoop confirmed. I had a scoop confirmed yesterday, finally, about that DC Daily, that news show that's going to be their, their go-to official news source that'll be part of the DC Universe streaming service. Um, you know, that got confirmed officially by DC Comics, and Kevin Smith is going to host a thing sort of explaining everything about it next week. We saw pictures of the set, and they're going to be talking about, obviously, you know, there's going to be a heavy focus on what's going on on the network, but they also say in the description that they will, that they will be discussing upcoming films and series and everything else. So that, that's going to be your new one-stop shop for official word, and that should really help cut down on all the rumor and innuendo whenever it comes to the cinematic DC universe. And in general, all the uncertainty about DC and continuities and who's playing who and who's directing what and what movie is simply being in de you know, developed and what movies actually got a green light. You know, th this DC Daily Show should hopefully clarify and fix a lot of their public relations issues that they've been vocal about wanting to fix since September of last year when they said that they know they have a perception problem and they never know whether or not to address rumors or not. Well, this show looks like it's going to do exactly that. Um, but I bring this up because the same source who told me about that, you know, I was talking to them about Superman and what's going on with Cavill and what's going on with you know, the just Superman in general. And the source had an interesting bit of insight in that they feel that the studio has sort of written themselves into a corner. They've sort of, you know, kind of got themselves into a tough spot here in terms of leverage, in terms of trying to, you know, kind of keep things reasonable in these negotiations. And that is by allowing David F. Sandberg to put as much Superman stuff into Shazam as they've allowed him to, they've now made it super awkward if Henry decides not to come back or if they don't bend to try to give Henry what he wants so that he does come back. Because from what I'm hearing from this source, you know, the movie with or without the cameo that hasn't been shot yet but has been written, with or without that cameo, there's a lot of Superman in this movie. Whether it be visual references, whether it be spoken references, by setting it so firmly in the post-BVS, post-Justice League world with visual cues and hints at, you know, Henry Cavill's Superman and Ben Affleck's Batman, they've kind of put themselves in a tough spot where, you know, here you have this movie that's still very much soaking up the gravy from those movies and passing it forward and serving it on to other audiences. But now what, you know, we already know it looks like Affleck is done, but now Cavill could be gone too. You know, so the, the, my, my studio insider over there thinks like that's one of the reasons why they're confident a deal will get done. Aside from the fact that obviously both sides would like a deal, you know, they just, they're too firmly entrenched and too firmly invested in this version of Superman to just risk letting Cavill go. 
So, you know, and, and another thing to factor in, too, as we're all getting tired of this waiting game and this uncertainty around our Man of Steel, around our Superman, you know, I have a feeling that September is going to be when, when things sort of uh, fall back into place and some of this uncertainty gets addressed head on. Because something you have to understand and something that doesn't get enough attention in all of this, a very important factor here is that Henry Cavill is still out promoting Mission Impossible Fallout. You know, I know it came out July 26th here in the States, but it doesn't open in China until next week. So he's still out in international markets doing interviews, doing pressers, doing, you know, all kinds of stuff for this movie. He's not necessarily back home and here ready to focus on his next things yet. I have a feeling that once August is done and now we've moved into September and Mission Impossible will have then opened in all of its primary markets, that's when him and his team can reconvene with Warner Brothers and finally just kind of put pen to paper and finish all this. You know, that's kind of just my hunch. That part is not necessarily, you know, that's not from a source or an insider, but I'm just looking at it logistically that while he's still working on Fallout, you know, that's one of the other reasons that you know negotiations have stalled and have been on hold for the last couple of months. And so, you know, a, a part of me thinks that they're going to, you know, they're going to reconvene in September and we could have an announcement, hopefully, between now and the time Aquaman comes out. Now, speaking of Aquaman, uh, I've actually now spoken to a couple of folks who've seen the movie. So I can share with you just in a non-spoiler capacity what I've heard about the film. I mean, I'm going to keep it very vague, and I, and, and, I, and I don't want you to put too much stock in this, because remember, these are just subjective opinions. This is not a very large pool of people. I know literally two people who've seen it. That's it, two people. So you can't form a consensus about this. You're not going to see me making clickbait on revengeofthefans.com about, all oh, these two random people thought this about this movie. Like, I'm not going to do that to you. But just right here, while we're talking like friends, just having a casual conversation here on the Fanboy Podcast, like you do, I'll just let you know what's been said. And what's been said is that Aquaman is good. Good. Not great. Not, you know, an all-time classic. Maybe not necessarily another, you know, Wonder Woman or, or whatever. But it's a good movie. And that in many ways... And this is going to bother some people just because, yeah, I didn't make the comparison. Don't shoot the messenger. Well, the two people I spoke to who saw it compared it to an MCU movie, uh, specifically phase one MCU. Back when things were still sort of exciting and heading into the unknown, kind of before it got kind of as cookie cutter as as, as the MCU kind of got there in the middle. Um so yeah, so it's kind of being compared to a, a phase one Marvel movie with that mix of, you know, action and adventure, but with ample amounts of humor and charm. And in general, you know, it almost feels like more like a setup for future Aquaman movies, as opposed to just being this one, you know, awe-inspiring epic superhero film. So that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing it's good. It's not great. And it feels like you're watching a phase one Marvel movie. And look, that doesn't bother me because, you know, a couple of my favorite Marvel movies came out in phase one. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a staunch defender and lover of uh, Captain America, the first Avenger. And I thought the first Iron Man was pretty great. And I even defend the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, fight me. Let's do it. Fight me. I still really enjoy Edward Norton's The Incredible Hulk. 
So for me, you know, hearing the phase one comparison doesn't really freak me out all that much. But uh, regardless, no matter what, I'm glad to continue to be hearing good things. You know, I first heard some stuff from test screenings earlier this year, and now I'm hearing stuff from like, you know, further along screenings where, where the effects are nearly finalized and all this other stuff. I'm hearing about what's going on now, and it's all been positive. So no matter what, it looks like, you know, we're going to have a good movie to enjoy and celebrate and gather around this December. And that, to me, is very exciting. And, um, you know, the, the, the last bit of DC stuff I want to hit on, I want to just reiterate something that I said earlier this week over on the Twitter, which, by the way, if you don't follow me, you can follow me at I underscore am underscore MFR. But something I said over on the Twitter was that, you know, Birds of Prey casting is now officially underway. And that a lot of the names that were popping up, you know, your Alexandra Daddario's and your Vanessa Kirby's and your Blake Lively's and those other names, you know, those were names that were just on a wish list. They were on paper and there might have even been concept artists because that happens sometimes, by the way, when when designers are coming up with their costume designs and their logo designs, they sometimes just pick an actor as like a digital model and use them to make the storyboard for their presentation for why this design should be chosen and this or that. And I get the sense that perhaps some of these actresses were used as digital models by the concept artists. But it's important to note that what the concept artists are using, that what the internal wish lists are by the studio, that does not necessarily mean that these people are going to get the roles or that they'll even get to audition for it because, you know, they, they might have scheduling conflicts. They might be out of the price range, but they're more so an indication of the types of actors and actresses that the studio is looking at for a given role. So just keep that in mind. Everything you've heard in the last month or so has been actresses who are on a wish list. Now, though, is when people are getting called in. So that tells me that in the next, you know, in the next few weeks, we should be hearing some stuff about who's been in, you know, who's actually come to the studios at Burbank and read for these roles and who's actually in the running and who the real front runners are. So stay tuned for that. You know, I've got my spies and my little birds over there trying to leak me any information they can so that I can get it to you as quickly as possible. Um, by the way, I've also got someone who's, who's promised me that if they find out who's going to play the young Batman, they're going to tell me first. So I'm like, oh, you better. So uh, keep that in mind. You know, th th there's someone there, who, a, a very high-level source, someone who I trust implicitly, who has been proven right time and time again, has promised me that they will bring me the scoop on who will play the young Batman. Because, you know, aside from Birds of Prey, you know, the Flash and the Batman should be having some casting stuff these next few months because those are the all those films are set to start production in the early part of next year. So you better believe that some casting decisions and breakdowns and all that kind of stuff are going to be coming in the weeks and months to come. And I promise to endeavor to get you those answers as quickly as and as specifically as I possibly can. But okay, now it is time to get in to the main event for this episode. And that is my conversation with Mark Wade. Now, just to kind of put into perspective, because a lot of, you know, a lot of people focus 
on Kingdom Come and Superman Birthright, because those are iconic books, especially Kingdom Come with the artwork by Alex Ross. And just, you know, that, that, that is a fan favorite book. But you got to understand, that's not all Mark Waite has done. You know, he's he's been in this since the late 80s. He's been involved with comic books. And he's written for Captain America, Fantastic Four, The Flash, The Avengers, like so many more. He, he's literally been across all the studios, across, you know, writing for all the most important characters. And in certain, like he invented some of the most prevalent things in like the current DCU, things like the Speed Force and the Flash mythology that gets referenced a lot. He invented the Speed Force. You know, he co-created DC's Elseworld shingle. So without, you know, he, he was instrumental in that. And, and we all love Elseworlds now, don't we? You know, that's where stuff like, you know, uh, Superman Last Son and all that stuff comes from. He co-created the Elseworld stuff. You know, he's someone who's really been an architect for a lot of the things we take for granted during this modern day superhero boom. And for me... It's just, you know, I mean, I, you're, you're going you're, you're gonna to hear me talk to him about it, but it's just such an honor. And to be able to talk Superman with Mark Wade is really just, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I got to pinch myself. I really do. Um, and just to sort of caution some of you, some of you who are going to be sensitive about one topic that comes up a few times, you know, there's this. There's this, uh, shall we say, misconception out there, this sort of fake news narrative that Mr. Wade, quote unquote, hated Man of Steel. But the truth is, and we're going to get into it in the conversation, is that his, you know, his opinions about that film mirror my own, where he gives credit where credit is due. He agrees that the first two thirds of that movie were some pretty damn good Superman storytelling. And for me, I'll take it a step farther. I think it was, yeah, I think it was some of it was groundbreaking. Some of it was just like quintessential, absolutely beautiful for all time Superman storytelling done in live action cinema. Um, so yeah, so he gives credit where credit is due. He says the first two thirds were good, were a thumbs up. And then for him, just like with me, it's the third act where things kind of, you know, kind of come off the rails. But I, I bring this up because, you know, there will be some, uh, some choice words delivered towards the way Superman's been depicted across these last three movies and some of the creative decisions made around how we're adapting his mythology for, for, for the current, you know, pop culture landscape that we now live in. So just be mindful of that. We will get into some of that. And stay tuned after the conversation because I'm going to announce who my next guest on the Fanboy Podcast will be. But now, you know, without further ado, here it is, my conversation with Mr. Mark Wade. Mr. Wade, I just kind of have to start by saying I, I, I need to kind of just kind of put my, my fanboy heart out here. I, I'm kind of flabbergasted that I'm getting a chance to speak with you because well, <laughs> it's just, you know, I, I, I'm a gigantic Superman fanatic. Superman birthright to me is the, the ultimate retelling of the Superman origin. And I just want to say thank you first and foremost for agreeing to come on the fanboy today. Well, no, my pleasure. Thank you. I, I 
you know, this is the this is good. I like I like the outpouring. This is a good podcast so far. <laughs> I like the outpouring of a flattery. That's great. Yeah, well, you know, I I kind of know how to grease yeah. the wheels, don't I? No, seriously though, you know, like for me, just so you know what this is like. That like I consider you like the 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 number one custodian of the character for the sort of the Thank modern you. era. Yeah, for me, this is like getting to actually speak to like Siegel and Schuster. This is just as good for me as far as I'm concerned. Okay, yeah. I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> So, um, so you know what, I, I, I kind of want to start things off because in, in a previous interview, you mentioned a particular date that was very important to you. And I kind of think it's going to sort of set the tone for a lot of what we have to talk about because you and I have common ground on why this date was important. But I would like for you to talk to me a little bit about January 26, 1979. Sure. And the date that changed everything for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So tell it, us about that. Well, I mean, I was at that point in my life, you know, I was a what, 15 or so, um, had been kind of knocking around between households. Nobody, you know, my family was divorced. And of course that's not unusual, but you know, nobody's a villain in that scenario, but it just, it was a rough time. There was other stuff going on on a, on a personal level and on a family level that was pretty traumatic. And I had just sort of reached a point in my life where I felt like nobody cared. Like nobody cared whether I lived or died. Nobody cared whether I existed. I was in a really, really, really dark place. And on January 26, 1979, I went to see Superman the movie with Christopher Reeve. And I sat through that movie twice. And I came out of that movie theater. I liked comics going in. I liked Superman going in. But I liked, you know, I liked uh, billiards and I liked magic tricks. I liked a bunch of things. But when I came out of that movie theater, all I knew for sure was that the rest of my life was going to have to have something to do with Superman. Wow. It it just, Superman just literally saved my life that day, and I couldn't figure out why for a long time. It wasn't until I was an adult that I put the pieces together, and I realized, you know, here I am going in there just feeling like nobody cares, and nobody cared about me. And the beauty of Superman, especially in that movie, is that he cares about everybody. He cares about you, whether you're, you know, black or white, rich or poor, you know, wherever, whatever your situation is, he cares about you. And I know that's fiction and I know it's a, you know, he's a made up character. And I knew that at the time, but still at that moment, the power of that reached me and reached me at a very valuable, very important time in my life. That's, I mean, it's, it's always amazing to kind of hear you talk on these topics because in so many ways, like it mirrors so much of my experience because I also came from a sort of, you know, broken home, divorced uh, fa- you know, parents, and I, I dealt with a lot of my own sort of darkness surrounded by that. And similar to you, you know, Christopher Reeve's version of Superman and what he and Donner and Tom Mankiewicz all sort of came to, came up with together there really just, you know, he felt like a friend. He felt like there, even, you know, like, like you said, even though it's fiction, even though it's not real life, you know, there's right. this, there's this character out there that, that cares for everyone. And I, maybe I'm not so alone and look at him. He's lonely. He's the last of his kind, but he finds a way to put a smile on his face, put his needs second and put everyone else first. Right. Superman's selflessness is his absolute greatest superpower, not flying, not super strength, but his ability to put himself and his needs be, you know, back and not take advantage of all the things he could do with his powers. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've always said that too. Like it's, you know, it's some people get so caught up in the power. Oh, he could fly or he could lift a car or this and that. I'm like, forget all that. For me, the greatest, you know, his greatest gift is, is his heart, his humanity. The fact that he's more humane than most humans seem to be. That's that. That's I've never needed to see someone punch something in order to feel like he's super. 
You know, no. that's not what makes him super. And I feel like some people just get that so, you know, they get that so warped. It's, right. uh, it's beautiful to hear you say that. And also just like, you know, I feel like people say, oh, his only vulnerability is his kryptonite and this and so, and so on and so forth. Um, I wonder what you think of this. Like, you know, I've always sort of characterized it. Like what I love about Superman is like, well, you might not, you may not be able to pierce his skin. You could certainly break his heart. Right. Exactly. That's just it. That's his, his heart is as big as the world and his heart is the most vulnerable part of him. And, you know, a Superman story, this is the, I, I feel the same frustration. People, you know, dismiss Superman because he can't be hurt or he's invulnerable or whatever, which is crap. You know, that's, that's just not, they're not paying attention. It's true that he can, you know, it's kind of hard to land a punch with him on him without kryptonite or a red sun, but there's so many ways you can mess around with Superman because a Superman, I mean, the thing is, and this is something that we lose sight of sometimes. A Superman story is not about who can win a fight. A Superman story, a good Superman story, is about the ethical and moral responsibilities of the world's most powerful man. Hmm, and yeah. the, the, eth the ethical and moral challenges he faces on a day-to-day -day level, given the power he's got, given the responsibility he has. Those are, that's what a Superman, that's the heart of a Superman story. Yeah. Now I'm curious though, because yeah, you know, th those are th those are sort of like high-minded ideals and, and story elements that don't necessarily translate into like quote unquote like the sexiest good versus evil, right, you right. know, kind of story. And there is this sort of like conception or misconception that because of that, Superman is sort of hard to write for. You hear that a lot. Like you know, <laughs> one of the reasons <laughs> yeah. that yeah, I hear you that know, a lot, which and, just baffles me completely. But when I hear that, I just roll my eyes. I'm like, what is? <laughs> I, how is that possible? Is the, I could write Superman every day for the rest of my life without breaking a sweat. Oh, that's so great to hear. Write. The okay. easiest character to write. He's just, he's just, when you understand the character, when you really get a sense of who he is, where he comes from, what his situation is, there's just so much that is relatable about him. So much more so than Batman. So much more so than, than Thor or Iron Man. Uh, here is a guy who is who is fundamentally lonely, which is, uh, that is his great tragedy. It's not, you know, yes, he didn't have his parents murdered by, you know, uh, you know, a guy in an alleyway. Yeah. He didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't, his uncle Ben didn't pass away and, and make him feel about great responsibility and, you know, great power and so forth. It's it. He's the last of his kind and he's the only one like him in the universe. At least he was until, you know, Supergirl shows up or, or whatever. But even then he's still, he's still very much alone. He's still very much one of a kind. And, he has to hide that all the time. He has to hide who he is in order to function in the world, in order to pass as Clark Kent and have any sort of personal relationship with anybody. He has to sort of hide away who he really is. And I think that's a huge part of the appeal of Superman. It always has been is the Clark Kent aspect. The idea that, you know, the idea that all of us at one point in our life or another know what it's like to feel like rejected or or ignored because people don't see who we really are inside who can't you know we feel like geez if they could only see the real me you know yeah, they would yeah. they would understand and and i think everybody in that that's a universal experience i think and, I and that's that's clark yeah, no, and I was just going to say, like, in terms of making him, like, quote-unquote relatable, you know, people always act, oh, he's a demigod and whatever. But, like, who can't relate to what you just described? Well, exactly. Plus, you know, Superman, you're not supposed to relate to Superman. That's not what he's there for. You're supposed yeah. to relate to Clark Kent. That's why Clark Kent is there. That's the part you're supposed to relate to. It's right there in the – I mean, it's right there in the text, you know? Yeah.
And I, I know that was one of your concerns uh, or one of the issues you had with Man of Steel, right? That it was like there was like no the Clark Kent disguise or whatever, you know, we we, we got that little, t you know, tiny little thing at the end where he's Clark with the glasses at the Daily Planet. But really, all we kind of get is this very kind of moody, contemplative Clark. And then we get the as Superman Clark. But they didn't really play with that dynamic enough, did they? No, I wish they had. I wish they were. I mean, I understand given the setup of the movie that there was no place to play that. But the way they'd written the movie. But it would have been nice to see more like that. And again, if we see more of the cinematic Superman in the you know, DC cinematic universe, then I'm sure they'll go there. But, you know, I, you know, there's, there are a lot of things to like about man of steel. And I, this is a part of the story that always gets omitted when people talk about how much I hate the movie. I didn't hate the movie. <laughs> yeah. I, and I made it abundantly clear in everything I've written. I didn't hate the movie. I just, yeah. you know, the murdering, <laughs> the murdering part, that I hated, but there's a, you know, the beautiful scenes earlier, like when Clark is, you know, it's school to have locked in a closet because he can't control his super hearing and his super, you know, his supervision and his mother comes to talk to him. That's a beautiful scene. There's some really good stuff in that movie. Yeah. Um, so and, and and yeah, like you said, if there were you know, if there's more time in, in the future and in, in future incarnations of that film universe to to play with the Clark Kent Superman dynamic, I think they they're onto something. Yeah. Well, it, you know, al it all. Yeah. It always just feels it always just feels to me like it's not. And this is not a criticism of the movie specifically. It just it never feels to me like it's a Superman story unless Clark is in there somewhere, too. Yeah, no, I agree. And just so you know, you don't have to, like, defend or validate or, or try to, you know, um, you know, I don't know, I guess, uh, what do we call it? Validate your opinion on Man of Steel. Like, we're actually on the same exact page with that film. Like, I, I don't think you hate it, just like I don't hate it. You and I are, like, eye to eye. And I, I reread your review prior to recording yeah. just to kind of you know, uh, make sure I didn't misrepresent anything. I know everyone likes to say, cause it, it's a big appealing headline. Oh, Mark Wade hates right. Man of Steel. Right. That's, it, the, that's the shorthand of yeah. it. Become. Yeah, exactly. But in actuality, like you and I are on the exact same page. We're like the first two thirds of that movie are actually a, you know, pretty, gar pretty darn good yeah. Superman origin movie, you yeah. know? And, and I'm a firm believer that like, and it's kind of unfortunate, but I feel like some of the best Superman moments in that movie are before he puts on the costume. Oh, by far, by far. Right. Yes, like, you know, like, yeah. like the, 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 the school bus rescue, um, you know, the way he saves the bully there, the whole thing where like he, you know, you, you, you get that sense where he knows he's putting himself in peril and that his father's yeah. going to be upset and he's opening himself to all this scrutiny and all this potential danger, but his innate goodness will not let him stand idly by and let anyone get hurt. Right, and, you know? and will not and will not let him succumb to the teachings of the Kents, the most evil couple who ever lived. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you owe them nothing. Shut up, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah or, or the uh, maybe he should have let them drown or something. Yeah. That 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 was definitely kind of questionable. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a being raised by Ayn Randian, you know. <laughs> Libertarians <laughs> is not the way to go with Superman. No. Yeah, but I mean, just needless to say, though, you are you and I are on the exact same page when it comes to that movie. The first two thirds, all right, we're yeah. on to something. Then, as soon as the the battle at Smallville begins and then you know leaks over into Metropolis, that's where for me it all kind of goes off a cliff. But um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know what? It's funny about that movie, you know, because they definitely borrowed some birthright. They definitely adapted some of 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 your story. 
And you know, first, I guess we kind of before we get into specifically what they borrowed, I think a lot of uh, a lot of people are curious about this. You know, in this age of the superhero comic book movie boom, when when Hollywood wants to adapt something that that you've written or or any other comic book writer has written, is there a conversation that happens there? A, do you get a call from David Goyer or Zack Snyder going, "Hey, there's this thing that you wrote that we want to sort of adapt," or what do you think of this, or or do they just kind of do that in a vacuum and you find out about it once the movie's in you know in theaters that's more that's more the vacuum i mean if it's you know if it's corporate owned comics like marvel and, Mar and dc they're you know you may get a courtesy i don't know that i've ever heard of anybody getting a courtesy call that doesn't mean to say that it hasn't happened it may have happened but like i know that ed brubaker was actually on the set of the second captain america movie and so you know which has a lot to do with you know the bucky stuff has a lot to do with with winter soldier stuff that he wrote so there's you know there's i'm sure there's times and starlin i'm sure was called about some of the avenger stuff um but you know they're not obligated to they don't necessarily call you um okay and you know it and but that's the game you know i mean again that i can't be upset about that because that's the rules you signed the contract years ago you know what you're writing it's work for hire and if somebody is able to use it and do something with it to put it in you know, the, the mainstream, it's a nice moment. You don't, you know, you, there's no, there's very rarely any compensation for it, or sometimes there is, but it's meager. Yeah. Um, and it's completely discretionary. It just depends on whether or not you're in DC's good graces at the time uh, or Marvel's or whatever. But it's, you know, but this, they're not, but they're not obligated to. So I mean, as okay. I always say, you know, as I always say, like it, yeah, it kind of, you know, I, I got to admit there's times when I think, geez, I sure wish I got a piece of it. You know, I wish I, I wish I got a nickel somebody every time somebody used the word speed for us. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I can't I got to make my peace with that. Like I knew the rules going in. I made it up for the company. They own it. And honestly, I have to look at it this way, which is the joy I feel whenever I hear that something I created is part of the overall mythos that has legs that, you know, somebody becomes part of the overall mythology, uh, and sustain a sustainable part or the thing about, you know, the S meaning hope, the things like that, um, you don't get paid for them, but it's a great feeling. And yeah. I honestly, you know, they could, yeah, they could throw me some money for speed force and I wouldn't <laughs> remember what I spent it on five years from now, but I will <laughs> always remember, I will always remember the moment I heard the word speed force coming from my television set. Yeah. That has to so be unbelievable. To, yeah, so like I said, you can't, you know, I mean, again, I, I'll never grouse about the fact that, yeah. you know, you, that these movies are making millions and you're paid what you were paid because that's the rule. That's, you know, you knew that going in. You're, I'm a grown up. I knew that when I was writing the comics. It's nice if they can every once in a while free up some discretionary funds. They sent me a nice check on on Man of Steel, which is very nice of them. Uh, they didn't have to. I don't think they took as much from Birthright as other people seem to think they did, but, um, but it was nice to get that conversation. I wrote them a nice letter back saying thank you. Um, oh, that's and nice. so it, ha it all happens from time to time. It's, it's, yeah. it's you, you know, so but in terms of consulting, uh, you know, with the corporate owned stuff, not so much. On the other hand, if I'm, you know, if, if it's something that I own, then, yeah, absolutely. I get a chance to to give two cents. Gotcha. And I'm glad you mentioned the whole thing about the S symbol meaning hope, because that's something I wanted to ask you about, because that's obviously one of the bigger elements that they took from birthright. The whole idea that the emblem is not just like the crest for the house of L it's actually the symbol for hope on Krypton. Right. And yeah, I just, I, I find it sort of ironic that of all the things that they could have taken, they took that, but they, in my mind, they didn't really follow up on that. You know, where was yeah, they, Superman <laughs> they, as a symbol really of hope? Don't. 
<laughs> yeah, they really didn't earn it, did they? No, it's no. a simple hope, and yet you know, I, I'm not sure how that translates to d- devastating three quarters of a metropolitan area. But still, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't want to focus so much on Man of Steel because people are going to feel like we're we're piling yeah. on that. But I feel like overall, though, yeah, that now we've seen this Superman across three different movies, right? We saw right. Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and then Justice League, and all along there was this idea of. You know, well, you know, everyone has to be patient. You can't expect him to be the symbol of hope in, in the first movie. It's an arc. It's an arc. And by the end of the arc, he will he will be the Superman, you know, the classic Superman that we all know and love. And I guess I want to ask you, now that we've gone through those three movies and Justice League came out last November, you know, what do you think of where we're at with Superman as, you know, it, it cinematically? Did, did he finally you know, complete that arc? Is he the symbol of hope as far as you can tell in terms of cinematically speaking? Or is there still work to be done there? I think well, there's probably a little work to be done, but by and large, I think they've got it. I mean, I think that the Superman in the back half of the Justice League movie that we saw is the Superman that I recognize. That's a guy who I, you know, it may not be exactly the Superman that I have in my head, but he's very recognizable. He was... You know, just the just the fact that everybody in that costume, everybody in that movie's costumes were colored in reds and blues and not in browns and tans, yeah. you know, and they weren't embarrassed. Uh, that right there is a step in the right direction that, you know, hit the little bit at the end where he runs a little race with Flash. That's yeah. just that's cool. That's just sweet. And it's cool and it's light. And it doesn't mean that everything about Superman has to be a light, funny, frothy movie. No, it doesn't no, have to of be course. A, yeah. But but it's not, you know. He didn't. He, he he should be smiling from time to time, and I think they, I think they got it. I mean, I, I'm you know if they announce Man of Steel two sometime with you know the you know with uh, that Henry actor and, yeah yeah and whatever then yeah I'm okay. I'd be interested in seeing that. I think that they've kind of gotten the bugs worked out now. Hopefully, yeah. I guess that was going to be kind of my follow up question. Like, do you feel like you know? We, we, you had some strong opinions about Man of Steel and how he was presented there. I don't know. Is there anything on, on the record for how you felt about Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice? Not that you can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Because you know what it is? The, one of the things I kept hearing as a Superman fan who was sort of infuriated by the third act of Man of Steel was that, well, you know, you got to be patient. It's, you know, Batman... I just paid twelve bucks. How patient do you want me to be? <laughs> that I have to do I have to shell out thirty six dollars to to see the guy? I that's the part that makes me a little nuts. Being patient, you know, it's one thing in a comic, it comes out every month. It's yeah. it's another thing to ask me to be patient over the course of four years to see an arc spill out that may or may not happen. So yeah. That, that you, I, I don't buy that. And mind you, I, I kind of think that that's just BS. I, I, I don't think that we were, you know, th- this was necessarily going to be a thing where we end up with the classic Superman. I think they thought that this was a good version of Superman. Oh, I think so too. I don't think, I don't think for a second anybody would have been talking about things like arcs or whatever if the first movie had been accepted, you know, had been well accepted by fans and by, you know, people who love Superman. I think, I don't think they would have been talking about arcs at all. I think they, think they, I think they thought they had a valid take. Yeah, and uh, they they kind of didn't, did they? <laughs> but, um, it, it's yeah. It, everybody, I've I've, I'm not trying to backpedal. I yeah. I've just I've sort of mellowed in the in the years. And now that I've seen Man of Steel, and I've seen Justice League, now that I've seen you know Dawn of Justice. Um, I've mellowed in the sense that that's ah, not my Superman, but I have to grit my teeth and admit that to a large extent, you get to pick the Superman that you want to worship because he's a pretty broad character and 
it's you know I just don't want to get I don't want to get lost in the weeds here about whether or not he's quote unquote my Superman because of this one thing or that one thing or this yeah. origin moment or whatever. It's not that it all everything comes down to Superman doesn't kill people. That's just the bottom line. He's, he he exists to do the impossible, which means that you can put him in an impossible situation and you think that there is no other way for anybody to win except to murder their opponent. And Superman will find a way because that's what he's built to do. The first time we ever see him in pop culture, he's doing the impossible. He's lifting a car over his head. He's doing, he's built by two teenage boys from Cleveland to do impossible things. And if he's not doing impossible things, then he's not Superman. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I appreciate the fact that people, you know, caterwaul about, well, geez, well, he had no choice but to, you know, keep his odd because of this, this, and this. Like, it's not a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 he's, he does whatever the writers tell him to do. So I, you know, I appreciate your argument, but don't fall back on, well, you know, he had to do it. Well, it's, it's a story. That's how yeah. stories work. You know, Grant Morris and I sat around for, you know, five minutes, came up with six ways out of it you know, in five minutes. So yeah. it's, it's, it, 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 again, I'm not trying to rag on that it. one moment. Yeah, no, it's just that, that's my big sticking point because I just don't think, I just, I don't, I'm not comfortable with, you know, kids growing up thinking, yeah, Superman, kill it. I'm just not, <laughs> not comfortable with that. I don't think that's a good moral message to send to generations. I hear you. Well, let me ask you, in terms of where he could go from here, because, you know, the actor Henry Cavill really kind of wants to sort of take ownership of the character a little more. And as he renegotiates a new deal, it's it's been said that he wants things like director approval and he wants to be able to have a say in the creative process. And he's even mentioned a story he would like to see adapted. And I'm curious if it's one that you've had a chance to read or or think on. But you as a super as the Superman guru, um, you know, he he's mentioned uh, Superman for tomorrow. And I'm curious if that's a story you're familiar with and if you think that would be an interesting way for Superman to go, cinematically speaking. It might be. I, I, my memory of that story is it's pretty dark. Uh, but you can, you, know, you can do anything with a story once you get into it. Uh, I, you know, it was a good story. I, don't, I also want to, and again, this is me working purely off memory. I want to remember that that story didn't have a whole lot of Clark Kent Superman dynamic in it. Okay. Um, so I think you'd need to back. I could be completely wrong. I'm, I'm going from memory. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you, the, the one thing that's odd about that choice to me is that you're, when you come to the table with another Superman movie, it seems to me like you're going to want to set up status quo. That yeah. you want to introduce, introduce people to Perry White and Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen and the daily planet and so forth and so on. And, and the whole point of four tomorrows, it has none of those things in it. The whole point of yeah. For Tomorrow is that the entire city of Metropolis is missing, right? Isn't that the way it works? You know, I full disclosure, I haven't read the story. So I, I just know I said, that yeah. he wants it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so that seems like an odd place to play that movie if you're not going to, you know, if it's not your second or third or fourth movie. It seems yeah. like an odd way to go. But again, you know, they can, you know, you can find good stuff in any story. I'm not ragging on that story yeah. at all. No, it's just course. it seems like an, I remember reading that and thinking, well, that's an, that's an odd choice. Um, I mean, years ago is another. I mean, to my point, if you remember, John Byrne did a a graphic novel in the late '80s called Superman: The Earth Stealers, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and that was uh, a Superman story set almost exclusively in outer space, and that was John's 
treatment. That was John's pitch for the fourth Superman movie. And he, you know, they nicely let him write up a pitch and that was his idea for it. And they said no. And I see why not because it's a bad story, but because there's there's no Clark in that story. There's no there's very little of Metropolis or the Daily Planet or his supporting characters. Any of that they appear like on the first two pages and the last two pages or something like that. So it just seems to me like if you're doing for mass market broad audience, it's, it would seem like an odd choice to to not pay any attention to the stuff that makes us makes us feel familiar makes it feel familiar to us yeah of course i mean superman's one of those characters where the supporting players are a huge part of what the overall feel and story is it's not just about him it's about you know it's about lois it's about jimmy it's about perry it's about that whole you know that whole little superman world there so that, that yeah, has to be present yeah and it's kind of true of all the franchise characters. I mean, frankly, if you you can do a Batman story that doesn't have Bruce Wayne or Dick Grayson or Alfred or the Batcave or the Batmobile or Commissioner Gordon, you can do a story with without all of those things. But I, it will feel less like a Batman story. It'll feel a little less like a Batman story that way because you're you're not using the things that are endemic to the character that are unique to the character. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, actually, because you, know, you you got into Superman and sort of decided you wanted to enter this world, more or less, because of you know, when you saw the movie, right? Right. And, you know, now the in, 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 in this age we're living in, you know, the Hollywood is really embracing comic books and the roots and then and the writers and the creators. And, you know, Jeff Johns is now writing the Green Lantern Corps movie and Frank Miller has written some adaptions of his stuff. You know, would you be interested in writing a Superman movie if, if you oh. got a call from Jim Lee, the chief, the chief creative officer tomorrow and said, hey, Mark, we want you to submit a treatment Would that. Is that something that would interest you? Sure. I mean, that would never happen. So it's really easy for me to say yes. But <laughs> sure, I would. You know, that'd be interesting. I, I think that, I'm, you know, I, and I've dabbled in film and TV before and it's a whole different skill. set. It's a whole different way of thinking and writing and processing ideas. And so. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I could write the best Superman movie. I I'm not sure that I could because I write comics. I'm not sure that I my skill set adapts beautifully to film. It could, I, you know. But again, that so if we're being hypothetical, sure, I'd take swing at something like that. I don't know what my story would be. Actually, that's not true. I know exactly what my story would be, but Ooh. I can't and I can't give it away. It's the one. <laughs> it's the one Superman story I've got in my back pocket that, you know, if we if we all live long enough. <laughs> maybe someone will ask me to tell it someday oh please somebody somebody hear this and make that happen i, I want to hear what this superman story in your back pocket is well, you know write dc yeah you know, just you know that's that you do if you want to if you want to see the story write dc and tell them yeah well personally for me it would be wonderful to just kind of see that happen full circle for you imagine you know going from being so impacted by Superman the movie on January 26, 1979, to now being you know, now being able to say that you wrote or co-wrote or had a real creative hand on shaping him cinematically. Yeah. I think that'd be beautifully full circle. Um now I'm just curious too because you know you you kind of you've worn several hats. What I think is interesting is you know, you started off as an editor, and when you got into the business, you know you didn't really have illusions of becoming a writer. Is that correct? That's correct. I had no and I had no ambition for being a writer at all. I really didn't. I honestly thought, oh my god, how can you come up with this many ideas all the time? How can you keep coming up with <laughs> ideas? It just seems like a lot of work. I don't know how you could do it. 
And the advantage I had working as an editor at DC Comics for a couple of years was that I was working with every writer in comics. And mm. all these scripts came across my desk from, you know, from Alan Moore to Neil Gaiman to John Ostrander to Bill Loebs to, you know, you name it. And I'm working on all these scripts. And I, so it was boot camp. I learned more editing all the scripts, looking at all those scripts coming across my desk. I learned more in, in two years than I could have learned in 10 years on my own. Wow. Yeah, talk about so, a boot camp. Yeah, and so by the time I was, you know, uh, you know, one time I left the editorial and went on, it felt like okay, I can, I can, yeah, I take a swing at this. I've done a couple of stories. Let's see if I can do a couple more, and then a couple more led to a couple more, and I've just been very lucky. I've that's thirty some years ago, and I've never had to look for work since. I've been very, very lucky. Knock yeah. on wood. Yeah, and if it really feels like you've worked on almost every major character there is across all, you know every company, and you know you've just you've kind of been able to put your mark on so many different characters. That's, that's... it's funny. The, Tom Brevoort and I talk about that all the time. Tom Brevoort, the executive editor of Marvel, we talk about that all the time. Every couple of years, it's time for me to you know look for something else to do, and we kind of look at each other like, where do I go now? I've done, you know, I've, I've written <laughs> everything, and they've written everything but Thor, and I just and I don't. I, I, Thor's a great character, but I don't respond to it. I don't relate to Thor. I can't make Thor work in my head. So beyond that, I don't know what else there is for me to write. So we, that's how I ended up with, uh, you know, Doctor Strange recently. Not because, you know, not because it's not a great character and it's a fun book and I have a great time doing it. But, you know, it wasn't necessarily my first thought. Um, yeah. But it's but so and you don't want to go back and repeat yourself terribly much if you can, because yeah. that's always a trap. You always end up you're competing with. Not only you're competing with your past work, you're competing with people's memory of your past work, and so they will always remember it better than it was. Yeah. Um, so, well, let me ask know, you. you. Yeah. Because yeah, in terms of like, okay, you don't want to repeat yourself, but let me ask: you, Is there a character that you feel like you have some unfinished business with? That like, if given the opportunity to, like, this is the one where, like, you know, I mean, we spoke about Superman. Maybe that's your answer. I'm not sure, but you know, is there a character where, like, you know what? If I could go back and continue this story or take this character to this place, like, this is the one that lights me up the most. That's a good question. I don't think there really is one. I think I've been lucky enough to be able to to say what I want to say with the characters that I've done stuff with. I've I've you know, the only thing, the only time I was ever fired off a book was actually twice counting Fantastic Four when we were the, that epic story of us being fired off Fantastic Four, me and Mike Ringo, only to be rehired like like <laughs> two weeks later uh, because crazy story. You can all, you know, go on the web, look it up. You'll yeah. find it. Um, and then other than that, I think Brave and Bold was the when I was doing my Brave and Bold run at DC Comics. The only other time I was I was fired off a book, and that was just to make room for Straczynski. It wasn't because of the quality of the work. It was just, hey, big shot coming through. Get lost, Mister Wade. Mister Straczynski's coming through. And so other than that, I've never been. So I've never. Like, in other words, I've been able to run out the clock on the things I want to do. I generally I don't get pushed off books. I generally get a chance to, you know get to a point where I'm like, all right, I've kind of run out of ways to do radar sense or, okay, I've kind of figured out all the speed tricks I know to, to do for the time being. Let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, no, let me ask you too, just in terms of, you know, cause something I've grown frustrated about with, in terms of as a Superman fan is that like, I feel like yeah, I, I wish more people felt like you did, that he's not hard to write for because right. I feel like, you know, if you look overall over these last, you know, 20, 30 years, 
you know, it feels like other A-list characters are always getting new movies. You know, there's been a new Spider-Man movie in development every year since 2002. And right. There's there's a million Batman movies, and there's just an endless amount of them. Meanwhile, when it comes to, like, solo Superman stories, since 1987, we've only had Superman 4, Superman Returns, and Man of Steel. We've had three yeah. movies in That's 31 it. years. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like, do, do you feel a longing similar to that, that I feel in terms of, like, I want the quote-unquote the dark knight of Superman to arrive soon? You know, that, that, that modern-day, you know, the ultimate classic, you know, for-its-time Superman movie. Like, do you, do, you, yes. do you feel that? Yeah, but you know what? We are – it helps that we – it helps that Warner Brothers knows how to do TV. Yeah. It, it helps that – it doesn't. It doesn't feel quite as much like it's missing because Supergirl kicks ass because that's a great show, um, and it's not Superman, but it's still the S. It's still the Kryptonian mythology, and yeah. it feels like, you know, it feels like we're getting a little taste of something. So, um, I, yeah, it would be nice. It would. It would be awesome to you know somebody finally come along and go, okay, here's the Superman movie to blow the doors off the joint. Here's the here's the Dark Knight of Superman movie. Uh, but. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, it just feels like so much of it comes back to this idea that like, if people find him hard to write for, how do we write for yeah. a guy who's a demi? Yeah, I just feel like yeah, yeah. more people need to look at him the way we do and see what really makes him tick and what makes him special. And it's not how hard he can punch stuff. But anyway. No, it has uh, nothing to do with how hard he punches <laughs> stuff. Exactly. Yeah. But um, all right. So I just kind of, yeah, I know we, we've only got a couple minutes left and I want to talk a little bit about what you're working on now. Sure. So, you know, why did you let everyone know what it is you're working on right now? Well, right now I'm working on Doctor, working on Doctor Strange at Marvel. Uh, I'm finishing up a run on Ant Man and Wasp, which was fun because I, I'm a science nerd and I love doing microscopic stuff and, and subatomic stuff. Um, you know, just finishing up my run on Archie. Uh, I'm doing a couple of things for another company. I can't, I can't mention right now. It's, it will be announced that I think for the New York show there's some big announcements coming out oh, wow. about upcoming stuff and then been dabbling around in more creator owned stuff recently um and so that's it's funny this is the you know this is one of those rare periods where there's not something by me out every week it seems yeah. like um <laughs> but you know but dr strange is certainly my home for the time being i'm really enjoying doing that Okay, and I actually want to ask you, though, believe it or not, about Archie, because of yeah. all things, you know, I have a seven-year-old daughter who's obsessed with Archie. Like she, we, cool. We, we get her the collections of, like, the old comics, where they, right. they're all kind of compiled into one book, because she has, like, four volumes of that, and she's constantly reading it in the back of the car when we're on road trips, and it just, cool. she, yeah. And I'm just curious, what it is you think it is about Archie that's made it so sort of, like, transcendent? Because, you know, the, the, these books are not new at all. And my seven-year-old in 2018 is reading stories from like you know the 50s and 60s. You know right. what is it that you think about Archie that sort of has made that that mythology so sort of universal? Well, that the, they've simplified the characters enough now where their their archetypes and look. I mean, yes, you know, my high school difference, my high school experience is different from your high school experience, different from her high school experience, whatever it will be. Yeah, uh, kids change. Things change fast and change. A lot changes, but a lot of stuff doesn't change, man. 
a lot of, you know, does she like me? Does she not like me? Um, mm-hmm. you know, oh my God, I'm, I'm, you know, is this my first kiss? Oh my God. Is this the first time I screwed up in front of everybody in school? Am I got to feel like a loser? Oh my God. You know, will I, you know, will I get this? Will I have this? Oh my God. The bully's picking on me. All these things are eternal. All these things are absolutely eternal and how we feel about them and how we respond to them. Those are all eternal feelings. And that's, that's why the Archie stuff I think is perennial. Yeah. All right. Well, you know what? I mean, that's as good an answer as I could have asked for. Um, okay, beautiful. So you know what, Mark? I think I think that's I, I think we just about covered it all. And I hope to have you on at some point again in the future, maybe to talk about, you know, uh, another big project you've got coming up, or hopefully to talk about that new Superman story that you get to do <laughs> exactly. one day. Who knows? So, <laughs> but either right, way, sir. yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. You see that, folks? Dreams do come true. All you got to do is go for them. Go after them. Pursue them. Don't listen to the nose in your head. Don't think of the multitude of reasons why something won't happen. Just go for it. The worst that can happen is they'll say no. And, you know, I got to chat... I got to chat with Mark Wade and a couple months ago, I got to chat with Mark Miller. And now my next... It's funny. I apparently can only book guys named Mark. Because my next guest is going to be the author Mark O'Connell. Yes, at some point in September, I'll be hooking up with Mark O'Connell. And if you haven't read his books, you are missing out. He wrote the book that's currently out there called Watching Skies, Star Wars, Spielberg, and Us, which is a very sort of personal essay and looking at kind of looking at the the history of the 1970s and 80s and all the amazing movies that came from Lucasfilm and Amblin Entertainment and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and all you know all the filmmakers from the 70s who really kind of shaped Hollywood and shaped you know, reshaped pop culture forever and he also wrote the book Catching Bullets Memoirs of a Bond Fan he's just you know, he's a phenomenal author and I'm going to have him on in September to talk about his books and kind of just talk about the evolution of, of fan culture over these last 30 or 40 years, you know? So it's going to be a very interesting chat, so I'm looking forward to having Mark O'Connell on here. But for now, if you enjoyed this episode of the Fanboy Podcast, please take some time. You'll go subscribe, go to, uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, let your friends know about this show. You know, we're 69 episodes in and going strong. I ain't going anywhere. But let's help this thing continue to grow so I can continue to bring in the creators and people who you want to hear from so thanks again and until next week life is chaos be kind adios